0: Today it's a legend not yet grown to legendary proportions. Proof is as modern as science. But before we explore the future, let's do a little exciting Christmas exploration at this friend of ours. <laughs> Let us take a Christmas of the future. Take Christmas 2409 A.D. or thereabouts. Or rather call it midwinter in the year 324 A.A. As the earth creatures of the day reckoned it, 324 A.A. after the atom. Of course, they would have known it was the year 2409. If there had been any scientist with them after the great disaster, when time came to an end... And began again, but there weren't, so they figured their world from the atom. These people lived in a world remote from machines, telephones, and radio. A world you and I would never recognize, perhaps because the oddest thing about it was the lack of violence. The people were reasonably quiet, calm. A man shared his talent and all the fruits of it. If a man had a way with growing things, then he fed his neighbors. If he was skilled with a knife and an axe, he built shelters. If he sang, he sang for everyone. And if he was a godman, in the winter evenings he held the book in his hand and retold the old, old stories. The stories remained almost untouched by time, passed down from an aging god-man to the chosen successor. The stories told of a shepherd who sang and killed a giant. They told of a man named Adam and his wife who ate a forbidden apple. And they told of a star that would come someday to announce the birth of a great king and to begin a time when all men would live together in peace and brotherhood. This story sometimes puzzled Auntie, who was chosen as the disciple of the God-man. Didn't all man live as brothers already? What could the story mean? What prince would come to rule them? He was thinking this over again tonight as he retold the old story, and then he thought him. He quickly focused faces about him and went on with the tale. On to the part about the men who followed the big star. And outside, the wind howled above the timbered roof, and the storm gathered in the dark. And then, as Amti came to the words, Peace on Earth, goodwill to men, the storm suddenly ceased. And the startling quiet was sudden as a shout, hurting even the ears. And then Amti rose and opened the door. And outside the world was white, dazzling white, like snow at midday. And involuntarily, Empty raised his head to the heavens, and there, there was the star. Amte called his people. He laid the book in the god-man's hands and said, Another must learn the stories, old man, for I must follow the star, as the book has foretold. Follow the star and discover the men who will dwell with us like brothers. And so Amte turned to the star and to the west. And though he did not know it yet, the earth around, other men watched the star and remembered the legends of their race. Other men left the safety of their caves and cliff houses and tree houses and huts to follow the star of prophecy. Other men, 12 generations after destruction and devastation and terror, had been reaped by violence, ready at least for peace and goodwill, went forth to seek their brothers. And like them, empty-faced, unafraid toward the unexplored vastness of his planet, faced to the star, a pilgrim bent on peace and goodwill among all men. Like the Magi of old, we are hurrying toward Christmas. And like the Magi, we hope to arrive bearing rich gifts for those we wish to honor. So, for less hurry and more welcome gifts, a word from a friend of ours. the same, like a pattern to trace, with the same rapt look on each tired face. The same tense still when the lights come on, and the words are but echoes of those past and gone. When someone says always so proud and so glad, it's the prettiest Christmas tree we ever had. From the time the tree leaves its woodsy spot, or is thoughtfully chosen from the lot. It's enfolded in magic, it's more than a tree, and its place in the room is picked carefully. The family stands back while it's shoved there and here, and all you can see of poor dad is his rear as he scoots on his knees, patient, waiting the word, or peers through its branches like some bright-eyed bird. Then at last it's just right, and the thought comes from Dad, I believe it's the best shaped tree we ever had. Then for the tinsel, the thin shiny balls, and its feet ruffled cotton like drifted snowfalls. Now the bulbs are concealed in its depth with a clip, and over all icicles artfully drip. The star sits on top. Ah, the moment is right. And Mother plays softly, the loved, silent night. There the lights on the tree have come to a glow and the silence is thrilled by a long, drawn-out "oh." And the words are a breath. Whether sad ones or glad, it's the prettiest Christmas tree we've ever had. Be its contour as tapered, its glitter as bright, its fragrance as spicy, its snowdrift as white, each year it's perfection, outdoing the rest, a beautiful symbol of this is the best, and the grace and the sparkle and simplicity of our pattern of living, expressed in a tree. All the years linked together are echoed and glad, it's the prettiest Christmas tree we've ever had. Just as a brief P.S., let's turn to a land where Christmas trees are rare indeed. In Italy, evergreen trees are a pretty scarce item. But does that stop the Italian family from having a Christmas tree? Not a bit. They have contrived a colorful gala substitute called the tsepo. It's a sort of a tent-shaped framework, three- or four-sided, that encloses a triangular or square shelves. At the top, where the slanting upright supports meat... There's a glittering star, or some other ornament, much like the one that tops your own Christmas tree. The uprights and the shelf edges are trimmed with the gayest of ornaments, dangles, fringe, and foil, and each shelf packs a surprise helping of Christmas cookies, candies, or fruit. Whatever the land, whatever the custom or legend This is a legend that goes on around the world. A legend from a friend of ours. In a town called Olney in Shropshire, England, there lived a little boy who ran away. Unlike most little boys who follow their noses when they run away from home, Henry followed his ears. <laughs> Henry wasn't a bad boy, just a bit unreliable. Or so Mrs. Gauntlet told herself when she found him missing for the fourth time in as many afternoons. It wasn't that he neglected his chores. She just wished that he wouldn't wander off without telling her where he was going. Not that she needed telling. She knew well the trail that Henry took. He followed his ears to the back gate, then down the lane and across the lot to the big carved doors of the church and down the dim aisle. And there she knew he'd be sitting when she went to look for him, chilled to the bone and lost in the dream. Perhaps even so, so far lost that he'd be sound asleep. Mrs. Gauntlet started to throw a shawl over her head and shoulders and then changed her mind. She'd let Henry's father bring him home this time. Perhaps that would make some impression. She was right, it did. It made an impression on young Henry's father, not on Henry at all. Father Gauntlet was so impressed with his son's fervent love of the music that poured out of the church organ that he allowed the boy, half-teasingly, to take lessons from the organist. Everyone was surprised, everyone except Henry. He'd been quite sure he could play the monstrous keyboard, and he did. Sometimes he departed from the melodies he was learning and made up others of his own. Now that Henry's interest in the keyboard was plainly much more than a little boy's daydream, his parents encouraged him all they could. There wasn't any extra money to be had for lessons in musical composition, but Father Gauntlet gave him fine masterpieces to copy and to learn from. And then came the day when at last the small parish was able to invest in a brand new organ with towering spire-like pipes and the tone of angels singing. Henry, young as he was, dreamed of playing that organ. He applied for the job, mentioning that he would play for so very little it would pay to hire him. It would have been funny if the little nine-year-old boy wasn't so serious. Gently, he was told that someday he might play for the church. ...as soon as he was big enough to play the complete music for the long service. Now Henry considered it a promise. And by the time the organ was completely installed, he was ready too... ...with all the music learned in both fingertips and heart. Henry, the little boy who followed his ears, found what he was looking for. Because, young as he was, so the story goes... He played that magnificent organ for 11 years and then went on to London town and fame as a composer. He had an ear for melody, Henry Gauntlet had, and so the lovely melody he composed to fit the Christmas verses written by Mrs. Cecil Frances Alexander still catch the whole the ear. Whenever at Christmas time we hear the carol we've chosen for today. You Remember Christ our
1: Savior. What to the world for long.
0: Just as it is wise of you to let your ears guide you by absorbing these words from a friend of ours, I'll have some wise words in poetry form. Uh-oh. Christmas morning watched the tree, he hid beneath a man's disguise with all the sparkle in his eyes. He watched his son with great delight, and how his heart leaped at the sight of Junior opening up his toys, and then there were two little boys, one half past three and one, oh well, his age and years, why need we tell? It did not matter as they played with auto, train, and gay parade. Circus and games and toy pop gun, I'm sure I do not know which one was happier the half-past three or the grown-up lad that used to be. Santa Claus were to send word down to us, I think it would be something like this. Ah, friends. Dear friends, as years go on and heads get gray, how fast the guests do go. Touch hands. Touch hands with those who stay. Strong hands to the weak. Old hands to the young. Around the Christmas board, touch hands. The false forget, the foe forgive, for every quest will go, and every fire burn low, and every cabin empty stand. Forget, forgive, for who may say that Christmas Day may ever come to host or guest again, touch hands. It is only once in a while that man comes close to the stars, for man is less a creature of cold, crystalline landscapes than of fireside and hearth. And so while we pause at Christmas to breathe for a moment the sharp clarity of the night, we turn again to feasting and merriment, home and hearth. It was so, too, in Father Moore's Salzberg Elps. Perhaps even on the same Christmas Eve, when Franz Gruber plucked his guitar and played Silent Night for the very first time. There, the young girls like to go to the woodpile because firewood to freshen the Yule-tide fire on Christmas Eve. For they can tell their fortunes by the first stick of wood they pick up. The man they marry will be just like the stick, young sapling or old and weathered, twisted and bent, or straight. ...and strong. The stick is examined for every twist, twig, stub and scar... ...as a forecast of romance. Or perhaps the Yule Fire provides another kind of fortune-telling... ...for it is hot enough to melt a pot of lead. When the lead is molten, small drops of it are poured into cold water... ...and from the odd shapes one can discern fortunes... ...that speak of ships, castles, hay racks, farmhouses, shoes... That speak of journeys, riches, good crops, marriage, or perhaps a career as a cobbler. Many are the facts, the fantasies, the legends of Christmas. (laughs)